This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan, we're delighted to welcome to this program Roger Helmer from Great Britain, a firm supporter of the U.S.-U.K. special relationship and a great friend of Israel and Jewish communities around the world. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a member of the European Parliament, representing the United Kingdom and serving in the Conservative and the U.K. party respectively. He has worked with several multinational companies, including Procter & Gamble, National Semiconductor, Reader's Digest, and Guinness PLC. Roger has spent more than 10 years living and working abroad, mainly in Southeast Asia. He is well known for his efforts in spearheading the United Kingdom's Brexit movement with leaders including Nigel Farage and leaders from Britain's Conservative Party. It has been it's been a great honor to have worked with Roger in Brussels and the United Kingdom in advancing our shared values and principles, and Roger Helmer delivered keynote speeches at the Jerusalem Leaders Summit events in Israel alongside U.S. members of Congress. Roger, indeed, it is our great honor to welcome you once again to America's Roundtable. Welcome, Roger. Welcome, Roger. Well, thank you so much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be back on the show. Due to the freezing weather in Texas, over 3 million homes and businesses remained without power for the third consecutive day this past week. Texas, considered the most energy-rich state, experienced multiple failures driven by extremely cold weather and record-breaking demand for electricity. This past week, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board wrote, and I quote, The problem is Texas' over-reliance on wind power that has left their grid more vulnerable to bad weather. Half of wind turbines froze last week, causing wind's share of electricity to plunge to 8% from 42%. Power prices in the wholesale market spiked, and grid regulators on Friday warned of rolling blackouts. Natural gas and coal generators ramped up to cover the supply gap, but couldn't meet the surging demand for electricity, which half of households rely on for heating, even as many families powered up their gas furnaces. Then some gas wells and pipelines froze. Roger, what are your thoughts about this major energy failure in Texas, which is costing lives, and what are the lessons that we can learn from this energy crisis? Well, first of all, I have to say it is a, a remarkable and, and distressing disaster. Um, as you rightly say, Texas is thought of, it is, the absolute hub of the energy business in the United States. We know that California has rolling blackouts and, and it's going to be sort of part of the furniture. We expect it. But Texas, the idea that Texas should have a power outage for days on end and apparently no way to solve it, is very shocking indeed. Of course, the lesson here is extraordinarily clear. It is the overcommitment and, and the too rapid deployment 
uh, of unreliable so-called renewable energy, intermittent energy sources. They are intermittent at any time of the year, but clearly they are simply incapable of coping uh, when, the, when you get an extraordinary weather event of this kind. By the way, it isn't only Texas, it isn't only the United States. Russia has exceptional cold. Can you believe there was snow in Greece, on the Acropolis, in Athens? So it's not just America. In Jerusalem, even in Jerusalem it was snowing. That I didn't know, but yes, it's very, very extensive. The disaster with, with wind turbines, and I don't think the editorial mentions, of course, solar panels as well, because uh, they have been covered up with snow. I have solar panels on my uh, uh, outbuildings uh, where I live here in England. Um, and we had snow last week for several days, and of course, no electricity generated. Uh, but you need, if you're going to have intermittent renewables, you need a substantial amount of mainstream power that you can bring in to back up those renewables when they're not delivering. Uh, and it, without having the detail precisely in front of me, it looks very much as though That is what failed to happen. To be fair, I think there were some problems with gas supplies as well in the exceptional weather. But the primary problem very much seems to be with the renewables. And can I add one other important point here? At the same time that we are looking at rolling blackouts in Texas and, of course, in California, because we expect them there, we are also, or politicians are talking about replacing domestic gas heating with electricity and replacing uh, petrol and diesel uh, automobiles with electric vehicles. Uh, and it seems we can't even provide the supply of electricity we need for what we're doing today. And yet tomorrow we want a dramatic increase uh, in capacity to cover electric vehicles and other electrification of homes and businesses. What would be, Roger, your ideal, let's say, breakdown of energy sources to be able to have this reliance on mainstream energy sources and on top of that having some of the renewables as well? I think there are various mixes that would work. The important thing is having controllable, or as they say, dispatchable. I don't know if it's the same term in, in America. That's the term they use in the UK for energy that you simply that's there and you can use it, unlike renewables where maybe you can use them, maybe you can't. I would want an energy system which included a lot of natural gas because it's fairly low emissions compared to coal, certainly. It's very controllable. You can switch it up and down in a moment. I think there is still a place for coal for baseload power. There is certainly an important place for nuclear Uh, when we come to look at some other countries, uh, one or two of them have closed down their nuclear capability and are now struggling uh, to catch up with alternative sources. So let's start out with, with sensible, baseload, controllable power, include nuclear, coal and gas. Then if people are concerned about having renewables at the margin, that's great, fine, but I wouldn't want more than, say, 20% renewables at the outside Because when you get up to high levels of renewables, it becomes much more difficult to balance the grid, even if you've got conventional capacity to do it with. Roger, America's center-left politicians have a tendency to look at what's happening in Europe as an example of what Americans should follow. 
They talk about the European Union's efforts on these directives and measures to promote a greater dependency on renewables. And I believe we had this conversation earlier on last year uh, when we talked about then-candidate Biden's rollout of his Green New Deal that he was uh, promoting at that time that would have cost trillions of dollars uh, to America's taxpayers. And we brought out an important article that we would like to recommend to our listeners to read, and that is found in Der Spiegel. Uh, its title is German Failure on the Road to a Renewable Future. Der Spiegel writes, and I quote, The vision of the fantastic new world of the future was born eight years ago, and this article came out December 2019, and it was due to the earthquake-triggered tsunami that damaged the nuclear plant in Fukushima, Japan. And then it also quotes the statement with the changes that German Chancellor Angela Merkel made uh, to phase out nuclear power in Germany. And I quote, But the sweeping idea has become bogged down in the details of German reality. The so-called Energiewende, the shift away from nuclear in favor of renewables, the greatest political project undertaken here since Germany's reunification, is facing failure. It also states the shift to renewables, the federal auditors say, has cost at least 160 billion euros in the last five years. Another quote says that despite hugely accepting initially, Germans now see it as being too expensive, too chaotic, and too unfair. Now, the clincher here at the last statement that I read from this particular article is that by 2050, the cost could add up to $3.4 trillion depending upon the scenario. Roger, what can we learn from Germany's experiences and what is your advice to America's elected leaders and hardworking citizens and taxpayers who are being forced to accept this notion of a major shift or reliance on renewable energy? Well, I strongly commend the suggestion you made uh, in your introduction there that America should look at Europe and learn lessons. But the lesson to learn is, look, it doesn't work, and it costs a ton of money, very, very large sums of money. You know, you're talking trillions, not billions there. But what happened in Germany, uh, and it was prompted, as you say, by the uh, Fukushima uh, disaster, they decided to turn off nuclear. Now, that was a fundamental mistake. You have this bizarre situation where the Greens, on the one hand, say, the climate crisis is the biggest crisis facing the world. And then you say, OK, well, you want to get rid of CO2. Let's have lots more nuclear. And they say, no, getting rid of nuclear power is the biggest crisis facing the world. They have to make up their minds. If they want reliable, baseload, zero carbon energy, then really uh, the only alternative available in large volume is nuclear. I mean, fine, if you've got hydro that's available, let's use that. But basically, you want high volumes of energy and you want them reliable, and you want them baseload, and you want them free of carbon, it has to be nuclear. So the first lesson is don't get rid of your nuclear. And unfortunately, I understand that across the states, there are nuclear power stations being closed down uh, and currently not being replaced. Now, the other thing was uh, public resistance in Germany, and that's a, a big factor. Yes, everybody wants to save the planet. Of course they do. Do you therefore want wind turbines in your back garden, as it were, no, you don't. Do you want new power lines trailed across your most attractive landscapes? No, you don't. Uh, and there has been enormous resistance. 
there were very grandiose plans to provide a new power grid in Germany so that the new energy sources could be connected up. But they are way, way behind where they thought they were going to be. Only a fraction of what they were going to build has been built, and each project is facing great resistance. This, I think, was described in another magazine as the biggest failure of Angela Merkel's uh, chancellorship. The other bitter irony, uh, of course, they are forced to get their energy from somewhere. They've turned off their nuclear. They are not getting the renewable energy they had planned to get. So guess what? They're using coal. And to a large extent, they're using so-called brown coal or lignite, uh, which I think everybody agrees is the dirtiest form of coal you can find. So despite this massive spending, they don't really have energy security. They're pretty tight on the, uh, on the energy security front, and they don't have the reductions in CO2 emissions that they wanted, and they are reduced to burning lignite. So Germany is a great example of how not to do it. And I'd be delighted if, if American politicians would actually look at that in a bit of detail and realize that it is not a panacea, it's not even a workable policy. You're right, Roger. Unfortunately, uh, one of the executive orders signed by Joe Biden uh, during his first day in office was to cancel the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline from Canada's Alberta to use refineries on the Gulf Coast and to join Paris Agreement climate change accords. It appears that Biden and his comrades do not care about jobs lost, but also, uh, you know, they're building it on environmental uh, concept. But we have to stress that Obama State Department found that the Keystone XL pipeline would have no material impact on greenhouse gas emissions. And Biden's policies will, in the end, raise energy prices, drive energy-intensive businesses out of the U.S., close plants, destroy jobs, and as you say, increase global CO2 emissions because of many of those heavy industries fleeing to China. What are your thoughts and can you make an analogy of what is going on with Britain and Europe at this moment? Well, I think the decision of, of Biden to cancel the Keystone Pipeline was, well, one of his first disasters. We will see what other disasters follow up. It was a dreadful mistake. The other key point, and I think this is a theme that carries over the Atlantic, in some circumstances, you need particular forms of energy. Now, America is going to use oil uh, for some years to come, possibly some decades to come. So the question is not really whether you use the oil or not. The question is where you get it from. Um, and obviously, if you can get it domestically, as it were, but at least you're getting it from the same continent. And compared to sourcing it from Russia or Saudi Arabia, um, my personal view is you're much better off sourcing it from Canada. Can I draw a comparison with a, a little bit of an argument we've had in the UK recently? Um, planning permission was authorised for a new coal mine in Britain for so-called coking coal, which is used in the steel industry. And of course, the Greens were immediately up in arms. You can't do that. You're going to have the, uh, the next uh, UN climate conference in Glasgow this year. It'll look terrible if we've just authorised uh, a new coal mine. Uh, and this coal mine will produce heaven knows how much CO2. Well, the fact is you need coking coal to make steel. So the choice is either we give up making steel or we get coking coal from somewhere. Uh, we don't want to give up making steel, so we either dig up our own coking coal locally and use it, or we import it 
from abroad, from the continent perhaps, from Poland or wherever we're going to get coking coal from. And just on sheer economic grounds and security of supply grounds, it seems much smarter to me to dig up your own coal than get it from somewhere else. And it's the same with, with the oil in, in the, the pipeline. You know, better to use North American oil um, than to use oil from around the world. Uh, so I think it's a terrible mistake being made here. But you also mentioned the Paris Agreement. And I think we want to be clear about the Paris Agreement. We know that a senior IPCC executive recently said, look, this climate policy is not really about the environment anymore. It's really about wealth transfers from rich countries to poor countries. And the Paris Agreement is not primarily about the environment. The Paris Agreement is about transferring money from rich countries, including primarily, of course, from America to China and India and those countries. So. It is a disaster, really, that Biden wants to go back into that agreement. The agreement is achieving nothing. The targets are not being met. Uh, it's purely aspirational. And yet he wants to be back in it, and it will cost American taxpayers a great deal of money. Roger, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Roger Helmer served in the political arena as a member of the European Parliament, representing the United Kingdom and serving in the Conservative and the UK parties respectively. He is a great ally of the transatlantic partnership and specifically the UK-US special relationship. Thank you, Roger, for your leadership. Thank you so much, Roger. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.